everybody. With my diet, you can eat all you want, anytime you want. And you'll lose weight? Uh, you might. It's a free country. I've got the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. Lose fat without diet or exercise. To burn stomach fat instantly disappears. I recommend a slow, steady gorging process combined with acyl horizontology. Garcinia Cambogia extract. Crystal sonic therapy. C. Buckthorn. Dr. Nick, this malpractice committee has received a few complaints against you. Dr. Oz being sued for advice he gave to viewers who struggle falling asleep. Dr. Oz is being accused of promoting quack treatments by some top physicians. Are you looking for a way to slash the cost of your medical expenses? How much would you pay for a pill that takes your body back 10 years? Call 1-600-DOCTORB. The B is for bargain. His empire and wealth have flourished. The most rewarding part was when he gave me my money. Bye-bye, everybody! All right, I am now joined by our uh, super producer, uh, Jake Appett, and a, a couple of very special guests, um, Ryan Lake uh, of, uh, of Chaos Pet uh, fame, and uh, the great Jason Miles of This Revolution, uh, who, yeah, who comes with his own sound effects. I like that. I need, I need a soundboard for this, yeah. <laughs> you, you don't have a soundboard? No, sadly, I'm uh, going to invest in one. Yeah, sure. right. <laughs> uh -oh. uh, yeah, so <laughs> I, uh, I invited uh, these gentlemen uh, on today to, uh, to look at a, uh, a couple of clips from a, uh, a recent debate between a friend of the show, Anna Kasparian, and um, something of the show. Dennis Prager. Uh, <laughs> uh, content for the show. <laughs> yes. yeah. GTA content provider, uh, Dennis, <laughs> Dennis Prager. Uh, Undoubtedly a future friend of the show. Eventually he's going to see this and come on and you guys can hit it off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'll be a mute cute. So uh, <laughs> we, uh, do we have the, uh, do we have the first clip? We ache to have them on our shows. We ache to debate them. But they won't debate us, and they won't come on our shows, and they won't us have us on their shows. I have offered tens of thousands of dollars to any left-wing columnist on the New York Times to debate me anywhere they want. They could choose the moderator. They could choose the audience. Mm -hmm. And serious money. Joining us now is Dennis Prager, the man you just saw in that video. And Dennis, uh, I guess you could call TYT a cinnamon because uh, we don't want you to ache. We want to make sure we give you an opportunity to feel good uh, by debating well, someone on I, the left. Funny, I, I was thinking if only you were a New York Times columnist, how much money you'd be making now. <laughs> well, I'm a little more honest than a New York Times columnist. So uh, this will be a great conversation. Thank you for doing it. So I wanted Thank to- Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So, I wanted to just kind of start off with, I guess, disagreeing with the notion that the left is afraid to have these kinds of discussions or debates. In fact, you had 
tweeted that video that we started this conversation with. And there were a lot of responses from prominent individuals on the left. I wanna give you a few examples, starting with Vosh, who's a big Twitch streamer. He's got a big YouTube channel as well. He says, you couldn't be more wrong. I love spirited debate in the free marketplace of ideas. He even provided his email and would love to have that conversation with you. My good friend Ben Burgess also responded, he's a great guy. He says, hi Dennis, I'd be delighted to chat with you either on my show or you could host it through PragerU or I'm sure Modern Day Debate or some other neutral platform would be happy to host it. And on multiple occasions, I noticed that Sam Cedar would also love to debate you. So he responded in that tweet as well saying available and adding Tim Pool knows what lengths he would go to to not even be on the same stage as me, right Tim? So there's some drama with Tim Pool, but just wanted to let you know, you're, you don't have to ache anymore. There are lots of people on the left who wanna debate you. Oh, I have no doubt that there are a lot of people on the left. The, the issue that I raised was people at the New York Times and people like you, for the, for example, you pleasantly surprised me by doing this, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. So. Are you really on the left if you don't work for the New York Times? I mean, that was the whole thing. Like the, the idea that the New York Times is this bastion of, of leftist thought. <laughs> yeah. In yeah. 2022 <laughs> is a joke at best. Like, who did he want to debate? Yeah, you don't Not bring me Thomas Friedman right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And how do we? Right. I want the real left. If you don't bring me a non-Girdadas right now, what are we really talking about? Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe like Jamel Bowie. Like, that's about the closest I can think of. Like, there's a. Uh, um, Elizabeth Brunig used to write for the New York Times for a minute, but like she hasn't for a little while. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is not like, I mean, not even in terms of your sort of basic social democratic stuff, I don't know. I mean, I don't know a lot of people who perceive the New York Times as being in love with like the Bernie campaign when that was happening, uh, for, uh, for example. I mean, obviously in the past, that was definitely a very left-wing outlet when it was uh, publishing uh, all of comrade Judith Miller's uh, articles about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq uh, in uh, 2002 and 2003. But yeah, that that's a sort of strange dodge, right? Because he was clearly making mm-hmm. a contrast about the left and the right. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think he also was yeah. speaking to the idea of a quote-unquote serious person. Uh. Um, right, mm-hmm. like uh, I don't want to talk to a Twitch streamer. Like he, he, sure. he was very quiet when she was like, "There's this guy Vosh." He was just, and he, that quietness is it was like that would have been my way of being like, "Fuck that guy." <laughs> if you would have brought mm-hmm. him, sat there. I wouldn't even have made a sound. I would have sat there and just looked at you like. Yeah. So I, I think what he meant was like, I need to talk to someone serious that yeah. my audience is going to take as a serious person because we also live in this technocratic world of uh phds and degrees mm-hmm. and um a new york well, times no, I'll take, i got one of those <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. But, but you know he doesn't i guess he doesn't see jacobin in the same light or or maybe you should you maybe you should have started your tweet with i am a columnist in jacobin <laughs> magazine Hi, Dennis. I have a PhD in it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am Dr. Ben Burgess, and I'm a columnist. In, like all of the things you've done, I've written two books. 
just, I think, just, 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 just done like a CV at the beginning of the tweet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, I, I don't want to hold water for the neoliberals uh, who are at the New York <laughs> Times, but I also think that like a lot of this is just weirdly logistical because like a big part of the reason that the people that want to debate him are YouTubers and, and, and streamers and stuff like that is because that's like what y'all do, right? Sure. I don't think everyone <laughs> in the New York Times is like, like, I don't know if Jamel Bowie is like a big debater. Like, I don't think any yeah, anyone is point. scared to debate, uh, well, you know, Prager. Well, yeah. I don't think that's I mean, their that's, thing. Yeah, and they don't that's give the a thing. Shit. He doesn't want to debate a debater. He wants to debate <laughs> a columnist who doesn't debate. <laughs> has no interest and never, yeah. has like never yeah. been like a public debate. Yeah, well, it's also weird because it's like the same reasoning, you know, I mean, he's, he's repeatedly said, um, you know, I mean, to, whatever. I, I understand our my relationship with Dennis only goes the one way he, he, he provides me with content, but uh, I, I don't, I don't do anything with him, but, uh, uh, but like, you know, the Sam Cedar thing, I mean, he's, he's, that's been repeatedly brought to his attention. Somebody called into his radio show to mention that. And, and he's sort of said, well, Sam with his million YouTube subscriptions doesn't count. That's, that's too small time for me. Um, but like by parody of reasoning, Shouldn't Prager you be too small time for anybody who writes for the New York Times? I mean, with, like, like how, how does you know? There's there's a weird um, there's a weird shell game going on here. Uh, I will also say with regard to the Sam part that um, what he's referring to because that this all happened. The original thing was on Tim Pool's show, and Sam says uh, Tim oh, Pool yeah. knows the links he will go to to avoid being on the same stage with me. Oh, gotcha. Um, I do know. The story that he's talking about there, because 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 I was involved in that, and anybody who wants to come to Los Angeles on October twenty third, Terragram Ballroom, uh, I will be happy to to share this story with me, uh, with you. But, uh, but in any case, um, and you can also see Anna, Ryan, Jason, um, Varn, who'll be at the post game. Um, Matt Leck, David Griscom, um, and no, no. Uh, uh, Jason, Beth. you know, uh, Deep State Kuba. Kuba's going to be there. Yeah. Who, uh, be... who will be like, uh, who will be like three weeks out from getting married, but you know, he'll still, uh, <laughs> his marriage he'll be, hangover. He'll still, still be doing his duty as a, uh, <laughs> as a, as a podcaster. People, going to people the on the show. show get married. I didn't, I didn't know that, uh, <laughs> like, once you get into politics, it just, uh, <laughs> it was arranged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was a yeah she's she's a she's a podcaster it was all you know, it was all yeah don't worry about it you're 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 in line you're number 47 don't worry like with someone from like red scare or something like that. Yeah. no right, you're aiming too high aiming. Yeah, no just red scare please no you're, you're too you're no yeah um so so yeah, this is this is just obviously silly. Like, uh, you know, out of the category of leftists who like doing debates, one hundred percent of them would be happy to. Uh, well, you know, there's the one person that I know that actually has debated people in the past. Not, mm. I can't remember him debating quote unquote right wingers as much, mm. but Chris Hedges used to debate Christopher Hitchens. I remember that. Yeah, um, moons ago, right? And Hedges was a Timesman before the Times actually booted him. When he uh, when he voiced his um, anti-war stance at a at a college graduation <laughs> ceremony, um, that's weird. 
<laughs> oh, I think it was like two thousand. The left wing New York Times, yeah. Yeah, the left wing New York Times told him, mm mm, mm mm. Amazing, amazing. He came here. Here is all your shit. Just go on in. <laughs> Don't even bother to say bye to anybody. We have it right here for you. Um, and and he's a well known. He has had uh, a television show. So if you need that sort of that following, you need the the educational backup. He's Harvard Divinity. Um, you know, what else do you need? He teaches at a prison. Can it be any more bleeding heart than that is for, for Dennis Prager? So I don't know what leftist he wants. I really think he wants to have just some sort of weird conversation with the Thomas Friedman type. Yeah. I mean, I think that he basically after, uh, I think, I think in the specific case of Anna, uh, he ended up, um, he ended up sort of having to because he'd uh, there were too many people that like he made this he made this big blustery statement and there were too many people who were like yeah let's do it uh, and um, and I think oh I'm pleasantly surprised someone agreed to this <laughs> <laughs> yeah there are there are a hundred people who agreed to this and, yeah <laughs> and that is like and that I think in, in Ada's case uh, it was particularly ridiculous that for him to pretend that, you know, that she was beneath his notice because, um, you know, so, you know, she, he had replied, you know, we talked about this in a previous episode, you know, we, um, he had replied to, uh, to, you know, controversy about some of the, you know, crime coverage on, on TYT by saying, Ooh, maybe she agrees with me about some of this stuff and inviting her to do something in Prager U. And she's like, no, I don't actually agree with you about any of this. Uh, <laughs> but if you want to do a debate, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And then him having already extended the initial offer, it was, it was, it was, you know, it was just too much. And so he kind of got backed into it. Um, and so uh, you just got to trick him to thinking you agree with him about something, get the invite. <laughs> then you, you're in. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to, we'll, we'll brainstorm in the, uh, in the post game and we'll, we'll come up with, uh, We'll come up with the uh, the the issue that you know. You, the, you have the, to like show a clip of you on Fox. weren't you on Fox once, Ben? <laughs> I've never been on Fox. You missed uh, You were on one of those news shows, weren't you? Uh, no, no. I I've I've never. Um, I mean, you know, I was on the Joe Rogan Experience. I don't I don't know. If there I you go. Show that. show yeah. show the screenshot of you and Rogan, <laughs> yeah. and then he'll be it's like, a, okay, this like, is one of my people. We can we Burgess, we can talk. <laughs> do one of those like really badly edited like we pick individual words to make it sound like you see your same thing Prager would agree with on Rogan's show <laughs> or we need like a like a five to ten minute segment on like the the British colonial empire and like why it wasn't so bad just like a complete, <laughs> but it's like an unlisted link that we just send yeah <laughs> yeah like that Good that's stuff, what you need man. to do and then then bam you're there yeah. you're there, there we go I like it well, uh, of course, um, Prager has done content on the British Empire and wasn't so why so bad. It was apparently part of its educational mission. I think our second clip covers that. If you think left-wing media has major billionaire donors, again, you'd sadly be mistaken. But the information regarding PragerU, which, by the way, hey. you're listed as an organization that's tax exempt, correct? And you're not supposed to be talking about political issues. But last time I checked, PragerU yeah. talks about a lot of political issues. Well, then you haven't checked in a long time. Uh, for example, we we never did a single video on Donald Trump. 
and that's not exactly political. Uh, we just did a, uh, uh, we put out a video a week. So we have 500 videos out about, and uh, we just put out one on Millard Fillmore. If you consider that political, Riveting. most people never heard of it. We're doing every single president. Many of our videos, probably at least half are purely educational. So to tell you about every president, for example, Democrat or Republican by some noted historian. It's a caricature of, of PragerU for you to say that we are largely political. Yeah, so so we've watched a fair amount of Prager content on here. Uh, is is this you you guys' impression? It's not particularly political. I thought that's all it was. I I don't think you've ever showed anything political from from their site. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I th I think they were maybe trying to to walk the line on uh, you know on not quite identifying themselves with with Trump, which was obviously something that split the conservative movement. But um, <laughs> I think that's. I uh, mean, didn't they do a whole? They did like a, a month on critical race theory. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is the. I see. There's um, why you know. Just I'm going to the main Prager U site right now. I see why Americans are buying guns. I see who cares about uh, illegal immigration. Um, the Venezuela life under socialism, uh, all of these things might lead a, a casual observer to, uh, to, to think there was, there's politics going on. Here. I, don't, uh, I don't see any not, politics. I'm not the politics. Yeah, yeah, I don't see it in uh, how wokeness killed country music. I don't, that just seems to be a popular entertainment. They've never been to a country actual, music concert in their life. That is an actual Prager U title, how wokeness killed country They've music. Never, I know, I saw it. I saw it on the... They've uh, never, as someone that's literally worked one of the largest country music festivals in the states numerous times how don't i need i need to watch that with the person that decided to make it because the country music is a lot of things woke ain't it <laughs> woke ain't it i don't know do you remember the dixie chicks i mean come on pretty woke if Look, you mean the chicks? They weren't there. You mean the chicks. the chicks? Sorry, the chicks. The chicks. They, right. And they weren't there because if they would have showed up, wouldn't have been a good look for them. <laughs> uh, let's see. What is critical race theory? Critical race theory, the anti civil rights movement. Missouri schools, <laughs> all caps, hide critical race theory in curriculum. Ooh, there's a James Lindsay video on critical race theory. I'm sure that's oh, neutral I, educational I, I content. Just, just educate, just a mathematician talking about some social issues. I mean, what's. Is he a mathematician? about that? He is a mathematician by training. What the yeah. hell does he talk about this stuff for? He doesn't yeah. even make math problems out of it. It's uh, a fascinating question. He's, a, he's an expert. You ask him, he's 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 a greater expert on this stuff than anyone because he spends all of his time reading it. Fascinating. Yeah, 14 hours a day, he says, which is that's confusing because right, right up until he was kicked out of Twitter, I'm pretty sure he was tweeting at least 18 hours a day. He says he spends 14 can, hours a day reading about critical race yes, theory? Yes, yeah, correct. That's not um, true. He can multitask. He multitasks. He tweets while he's reading. Like Derek Bell's stuff isn't that long. <laughs> it is. It is obviously not true. Uh, well, you, you. I mean, he's also reading Hegel, the original critical race theorist. You know, yeah, all that yeah. stuff. Oh, uh, all caps exposing totalitarianism, critical race theory, and gender ideology. Uh, another another educational video. All right, but let's be mm -hmm. fair. Just all neutral, neutral educational content. Uh, so I don't think the Miller Fillmore uh, one has come out yet. Uh, 
that, that, and, that. And I'm sure that all of oh. those videos are completely neutral. Um, and you know, if we actually were to watch one of those series on the presidents, it's all things you could just find on the Wikipedia page. I'm sure. Yeah. So apparently, the Miller Fillmore video is still in production. It's been a, it's been a couple of weeks since that debate, but uh, there's nothing about Miller Fillmore. The only thing that actually comes up is uh, for Miller Fillmore on the PragerU uh, YouTube channel is something that. Uh, I guess because it came up in that debate with Anna is the video uh, where somebody talks about the debate with Anna. It's called Don't Worry, Darling. It is a all caps feminist fever dream and Dennis Prager debates angry leftist. Um, now, so want, again, neutral educational content. I want to be fair about this. So Miller Fillmore is now yet, but they say they have done one in every president. So let's see, FDR, what do we got? Uh, did FDR end the Great Depression? What did, do we have bets about whether the answers could be yes or no? I think they're just asking the question. I doubt they're going to offer a perspective on this topic. Great art asks <laughs> questions and does not provide answers. Exactly. Are they going to say like how who really fixed it because he uh, built some bridges? Let's let's find out. Did President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal economic policies pull the country out of the Great Depression? My research clearly suggests that the answer, contrary to popular belief, is no. Hmm. Yeah, that's all right, I guess not. Okay. Uh, right. So that, that's so, FDR. But did maybe... you just say the war did? He's like, well, he didn't do anything. It was a war. Oh, okay. Well, let's 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 test the theory. Let's try a Republican. Let's see. If you want someone to watch to the end of your video, you shouldn't answer the question in the first five seconds. You should. You should wait <laughs> <up>. <laughs> Although I suppose Ronald Reagan was is the greatest. I can't. The words are too small on the screen. Uh, yeah. Uh, so what comes up for Reagan mm. is Ronald Reagan, the great communicator. Uh, ooh, Leo and Layla's history adventures with President Ronald Reagan. Oh um, that might be the funniest thing ever. Have you guys watched that before? Not that one. Uh, oh, then uh, Reagan get government out of the way. Uh, this one doesn't have oh, even have Reagan's right. name in the title, okay. but one of the videos that comes up is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Sounds a lot like Karl Marx. I'm uh, really curious to know whether JFK was a Democrat or Republican. <laughs> okay, now my impression is a Democrat, but. Um, that's what I thought, but, you know, maybe history no, maybe not, maybe to us, like they let's do. See. Let's see. He was one of America's oh, most geez. popular presidents, handsome, charismatic, a war hero. Handsome. He believed the strong military was the best guarantor of peace. He explained that cutting taxes was the best way to grow the economy. He firmly opposed racial quotas and was horrified by the idea of unrestricted abortions. Can you name him? Here's one more clue. He was not a Republican. The answer, John F. Kennedy. When he was elected president in 1960, Kennedy's views were considered mainstream in the Democratic Party. But while the Kennedy name is still revered by the Democrats today, the policies he espoused are not. Yeah, um, I, I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say that this is not actually neutral uh, educational content. I, I actually think I could sense a political perspective underlying some of this. Hmm. Okay. All right. I didn't see it, but all right. Yeah. You know, that everybody likes JFK, so he must've really been, you know, basically a Republican. Mm -hmm. um, now I, I want to be fair because it could be, they've got this Ronald Reagan. One of the Reagan videos is, um, uh, Ronald Reagan discusses gun laws, 
Now there, there could be something really interesting because maybe they're actually taking a shot at Reagan here because, um, you know, they could be talking about the fact that Ronald Reagan is governor of California, mm-hmm. when he was repressing the Black Panthers, et cetera, was all in favor of, uh, mm-hmm. of gun control back then um, and, and only switched much later on. So let's, let's see if that's going to be the angle of this video. <laughs> it's a nasty truth, but those who seek to inflict harm are not phased by gun control laws. I happen to know this from personal experience. Oh, because he got shot. Yeah. It took me a minute. Yeah. Got shot. No, that's the gun. <laughs> yeah. Gunshot. Yeah, uh, he got shot. He got shot and uh, and he, you know, 80s Reagan managed to managed to extract a uh, anti-gun control message from him getting shot. But, you know, well, the Brady we, Bill uh, comes out of him getting shot because then it paralyzes boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I do follow. <laughs> side note: I do follow John Hinckley on Twitter because this is part of that uh, crazy, you know, twenty-first century bingo that I never thought was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, John Hinckley on Twitter on tour didn't see that coming. That is something. <laughs> Did not see that coming. Nope. And his pro peace <laughs> tweets, you know, uh, I don't know how I feel about the world we live in. Okay, well, somebody in the chat says uh, John Hinckley's music is pretty good. Do you do you have a professional opinion on that? I haven't heard it. I'm actually scared to. Um, I did have a friend that was like, "Dude, Charles Manson stuff is sick," and I listened to it, and I was like, it's, "It just sounds no. like hippie bullshit that I hate." I, I I listened to um I listened to to Manson's album on Spotify. Um it's it's not great. Yeah. Like, I, I mean there is a reason why um you know he he did not end up becoming a rock star. Um and you know, and the crazy has nothing to do with it. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Mm-hmm. Like the crazy had nothing to do with it. No, yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. Like uh, he could have been just as crazy. <laughs> like if 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 I find out Hinkley is selling out even two hundred seat rooms, then again, part of that bingo card I was not ready for for the twenty first century. I mean, that's a show I might go see if he was. I might, I might do that. at the masquerade. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there's like a, a metal detector on the entrance to the, the last the last show I went to. There was a metal detector. Okay. Um, but I, the logic yeah. does that logic even make sense? That uh, because I was shot with a gun obtained legally, that means we shouldn't try to make it illegal. Like, what are you gonna do, man? If they want to shoot you, they're gonna shoot you. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? You've got to admire the, you know, part of the expression of sticking to your guns there. <laughs> Isn't the 60s Ronald Reagan was a very different guy. Yeah. Uh, you mean the colored guys have weapons? <laughs> where? Mm. Yeah. I have enough. That doesn't sound safe at all. Yeah. But if you get shot by a white guy. It's like, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? That is, uh, I think that's the white supremacy that people keep telling me. I need white to say guys are always getting good guns, right? You can't. Yeah. Like, what are you going to look? Look, white guy's got a gun. It's okay. He may shoot you. 
Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> Just look at me. Look at me. I'm like 109 when he shot me. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's like a flesh wound. Don't worry. What about your boy over there is paralyzed? I can't speak for him. <laughs> he should have moved. I don't know what to tell him. <laughs> Nobody asked him to dive in front of me. <laughs> I'm Reagan, bitch. <laughs> Reagan is walking around like Rich. <laughs> Someone said, "Don't ignore Reagan's military service." <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's true. Um, he uh, he did uh, he did bravely. Uh, what, what did they say? Uh, commercials. He bravely laid his life on the line in the L.A. film division and courageously traveled to New York City selling war bonds. Hey, hey he could have tripped on something. Yeah, could have stubbed a toe. You ever stubbed a toe? Yeah, I had something fall on my toe the other day. I was like, man, it's just like war. <laughs> I mean, essentially, you know, that's a principle is the same. The stuff falling on you might be worse. I was thinking about, you know, because um, World War Three has been inching kind of closer. Do you think that the podcasters will be considered uh, too valuable to draft? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was like, do you, am I going to get some kind of exception, like for the whole, like yeah. the home? Yeah, for the morale, for the home front. <laughs> I hope so. Good. Otherwise, I, I think I'm. Not, I think we're good. Right, I better hurry up and start my own podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. I can imagine a scenario where you show up at the recruiting office and you say you're a podcaster. And they say never mind. It wouldn't be because you're too valuable. <laughs> we can't risk him. <laughs> but he's so agile. He's like a G.I. Joe guy or something. Real life. But no, his words. Freedom. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the good news is um, if we have World War Three, I don't think it's going to come to that. I don't know. The good news is I'm way too old and they don't want me. That's the good news. Sorry. Uh, Jay. Also, <laughs> I think with World War Three. Right. Draft just won't be a consideration. Three of these things are all together. Yeah. You remember the uh, the scene in uh, Doctor Strangelove uh, where the guy who, I forget the name of the character, but the one who rides the bomb at the end uh, is assuring Slim, the other Slim guys Pickens? on the plane that, no. yeah, yeah, Slim Pickens, yeah, he... Uh, That's the actor, uh, the actor, yeah. Yeah, it's the actor, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, when he's assuring the other guys on the plane that when they get back from the war, they'll get medals and parades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. Jump, jump kick man is speaking truth here. This is Can you imagine life. Sam Cedar having a hold of a firearm for World War Three? <laughs> 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 yeah, no. I'm, I'm just. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna actually do it, but I am just imagining. <laughs> like I'm just imagining the. The Michael Brooks bit where he would be imitate he would be like mm -hmm. doing like Sam's dialogue when he was like mm -hmm. being told how to like assemble and disassemble his rifle and you know and all that stuff. Uh and you know, in Michael's Sam impression, which was like borderline just Mort the Jew from family from uh, family guy. 
<laughs> Either that or Sam is like uh, Sylvester Stallone's brother in that movie, uh, Terry Public <laughs> Hills, and he's just locked and loaded and just ready for action. <laughs> By the way, I watched American Ninja again for the first time. Oh, yeah. Years, and uh, oh. I did not know that one ninja can destroy an entire rebel army. Sure. Yeah, that's all it takes. And it's black friend that knows karate. <laughs> you need <laughs> both of them together yeah. can destroy an entire army of insurgents. Yeah. Now, if you, um, Tom F, I want to see this. Yeah. If you if you assemble an image <laughs> of Sam Peter, okay, but also also Andy, also Andy, I would love. Yes, Andy. <laughs> And oh. if you're inspired to actually draw Sam Snyder in a military uniform going to fight in Ukraine uh, like for, a... uh, for the outbreak of World War III. Oh, um, I used to make the podcast brigade. Sam <laughs> <laughs> is the general of the podcast brigade. What are you talking about? What I want to see happen is I want to see both images and see if we can tell which was drawn by Andy and which was drawn by the AI. I, I want to see Sam and Jimmy Dore as both generals of the podcast brigade, and they're constantly fighting over what to do next. <laughs> if you're real, that's right. <laughs> Make these things happen if you're real. Yeah. Um, I mean, there actually has, um, you know, I, I should say uh, I had an article out. Um, Last week, uh, in uh, in the uh, the Daily Beast, fleeing Russians aren't war criminals; they're refugees. About uh, the uh, Russians who actually are getting essentially drafted. I mean, these are people who are in the reserves, but I mean that doesn't really mean like you signed up for the reserves. That means like you have some military experience. They're like, "Yep, you should, you you know, we're going to bring you back, and you know, you have to go now." Um, and apparently, like I saw, apparently there was like a one of the trending results on uh, Russian Twitter right after they announced the mobilization of 300,000 people to send to Ukraine was uh, how to break your arm. Um, Did not know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and there have been all these people who have been fleeing or attempting to flee to, to neighboring countries. And what the, what the article is about are the various countries that are refusing to, uh, uh, to take them because, um, you know, that's, that's sort of, um, you know, I, I guess that's like uh, that's like a way you can stick it to some Russian people, even if they're Russian people who are trying not to fight for uh, for the Russian government. But uh, but yeah, the good news is uh, I don't think it matters. I mean, what they just decide is the draftable age, because I think by the time they're drafting anybody in the U.S., um, those of us who live in major cities would be dead, and uh, and it would be uh, it would be a non maybe maybe Jace would be okay at Rosarita. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm staying here. I'm defecting all the way, defecting. Like, no, no, I'm not part of your war. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I guess if they need San Diego, then 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 Jason would be dead. But um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. If, that's the, I don't if know San if Diego was a military target, <laughs> we must get the beach. <laughs> the surfers. Uh. <laughs> okay, that looked good. Let's get the chat again. 
All right. So Ron M says the the new platoon started. Jason, someone someone stick that into the AI uh, art generator. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Jason Boogaloo, Miles, Ben, Sarge, Burgess, Ryan, Ripper, Lake, and Jacob uh, Jackhammer at that as they fight their way through the wilds of Rosarito. How does Jake get the porn name? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. And by wild roads of Rosarito, you mean finding scary bugs on the on my morning run? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yelling like Sam Cedar. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, this is coffee. Oh yeah, fair enough. Um, so Andy, please, I please, please draw that platoon when you cover. <laughs> and yeah podcasters as the uh as gi joes that's that's exactly what we need in our life <laughs> that's pretty funny Jake. yeah I mean, this is this is always the um the thing that like um you know used to bother me uh, when people would like people would talk about people in left media as if they were like leaders of movements, and uh, and it's like guys, that's not that, that's not what this is. You right? never I, followed Dan Rather. <laughs> you never. <laughs> uh, what's wrong with you, man? That's that sounds like that's all your own weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, everybody else is willing to follow Dan Rather to the gates of hell, but I'm, no, I, when, I, I, when Dan wants to go, it's time to go. <laughs> Yeah, like yeah, we on the left, we we have our we have our divisions, but you know, once Dan Rather or Dowd <laughs> or uh, oh, what's the other one? Once uh, Dan um, Rather deploys to Ukraine, we're all yeah, in. we're we we put down all our our differences aside. Well, see, this and, is the thing that would actually justify it. Like, at least you'd be doing something in the real world. Like, you know, when um, like this is the thing that always drove me crazy. Like during the force the vote. Uh, you know, wars, you know, at least a series. <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. the, uh, I, the, I served, yeah. I served. <laughs> yeah. Oh, battle hearted veterans of the, the Force of Hope Wars. Uh, but uh, when that was going on, you know, people would say, like, if you thought Force the Vote was stupid, you know, be like, oh, so what are you going to do? What do you want to do? And it's like, well, I don't, like, if you're asking me for, like, something you could do to advance the cause of Medicare for all, I don't know, like, find, like, some. Some like chapter of like some like activist group that like knocks on doors and stuff and and go do that. But of course, that's not what they mean. What they mean is like no no no. What can you do on YouTube and Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Like that because that's yeah. that's clearly where this battle is being fought. You know, uh, what so do you do right would, now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What what can I do that involves watching people yell on YouTube and then like yelling myself on Twitter? And if you're telling yeah. me there's nothing that I can do that would achieve a major policy objective through the medium of YouTube and Twitter, then I guess you must just be saying there's nothing we can do. Like that's the, the you know, like that, that's what I'm hearing. Like you're, you're just saying, you're just saying it's the cause is hopeless, you know, that, uh, cause that's, that's obviously where politics happens is, uh, is YouTube and Twitter. Well, Gene Bajlan called it the great podcast jihad. Yeah. He also, <laughs> There's a there's a person who uh, I will not name who had a tweet where she she talked about being a um, 
the veteran of the you know force uh, force the vote and i remember gene saying it was like the Lebanese civil war for podcasters Wait, did, did someone actually seriously say that they were yes. the veteran of the force to vote yes they, they, well, they said they said the the, the horrors <laughs> the horrors I, uh, oh like like you know when you step out onto your yard and you just see bodies it's like Obi-Wan reminiscing about the Clone Wars. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah, just just the, the flashbacks. Like, oh, my inbox. Like you, your hand is like shaking as you go to get the, open your inbox. Uh, I, I I can I can uh, assure uh, M. Philbin that uh, if uh, well, first of all I am of the age in which I could get drafted and that. I would be so upset. It's not I'm all of the all of the the humor is out of uh, incredible terror about nuclear annihilation. I will say it was the only humor reason I joke about World War Three. I am yeah. It's this is <laughs> horrifying. It's it's, there's really no nothing. Yeah, nothing but we could do but laugh about. Yeah, it. no. I mean, look. If if you were by any chance in a place where you weren't getting too much fallout, then uh, then that that would mean that you wouldn't like you know die that day. Um, Human civilization is all, and you know, will not be fun after that. Yeah. But um, if it did stay conventional, consistent with my view that uh, that podcasters aren't leaders of movements, that this is a, this is a auxiliary. You know, you can you can do some political education, political inspiration, entertainment. So, running with that analogy, you know, we we can do we can do like USO stuff for the troops and the uh, the war with Russia that. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do, we'll do the, uh, we'll do the, uh, the traveling, give them a revolution live show for the troops. But, uh, <laughs> but in, 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 in like uh, our, uh, our uniforms and our, so they know that we're serious about supporting the troops. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, I will, um, well, I will see, um, I will see, well, I will talk to both of them much, much sooner than this, but I will see in person in, uh, in three-dimensional space. Uh, I will see, um, well, Ryan also sooner than this, but Ryan and Jason uh, in um, about three weeks uh, on uh, Sunday, October 23rd at the Terragram Ballroom in, uh, in Los Angeles. The link to, uh, to get tickets to that uh, is in the... Uh, uh, description uh, for uh, for this episode. Uh, also, uh, also present Matt Leck and David Griscom from uh, from Left Reckoning. Uh, also present uh, Deep State Cuba, possibly wearing some sort of NATO commemorative tie. There's there's been like a, a vote on that going on on Twitter about what he should wear to this. Um, and um, also present uh, C. Derek Varn, Daniel Bessner, probably other people who I am forgetting. Uh, should be a lot of fun. We'll, uh, we'll see you guys then. Uh, Jake, I will see you on YouTube at the end of the show. Uh, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then we're going to the post game with our friend uh, C. Derek Varn. Should be a lot of fun. But Oh, tell, tell, tell Varn I said what's up. Uh, thank you once again for having me, Ryan. It's been a minute. I haven't seen you on air. Yeah, Before yeah. I've seen you in L.A. Yeah, uh, Jake, see you in L.A. Ben, I'll see you probably sooner than later. And uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, All right. For right now, uh, we are going to uh, to bring on Matt McManus, uh, who uh, for anybody who's confused about the initial uh, the initial title and thumbnail, uh, Matt McManus does not write for the National Review. Um, he uh, 
you know, although that would be the most amazing crossover ever if, uh, if it happened. Uh, the original guest for tonight, there was a, uh, I think we are still going to have him, but uh, as they say in Game of Thrones, you know, what do we say to the god of death? No, not today. Uh, so um, today, instead, uh, scheduling issues being what they are, uh, we are uh, we are going to uh, to have Matt McManus, and this is the day that um, you know when you signed up, you out there as a Give Them an Argument fan, you knew this day would come uh, that you were going to be subjected to some videos from National Conservatism conferences, and uh, today is that day. Tyler Margulis, right? <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, you, this is the this is the life you chose. Uh, you knew this was going to happen, but no, I actually thought this would be uh, this would be interesting uh, to uh, to do. Uh, so, uh, ooh, okay, this is uh, this is not the one that I thought was going to be out first, but uh, but this this would actually be the spiciest possible one to start with if you want to start with it anyway. So. Um, this is uh, this is the first uh, first link uh, I got just uh, just now. Again, it's not what I thought we we're going to start with, but uh, but who uh, who would be the um, who would be the most interesting person who's who's spoken at a national conservatism conference that we could uh, that we could watch? I want you guys to think about that for just a second while Matt tells us who these people are. Uh, sure. Uh, well, NatCon began a few years ago. Uh, kind of was mainly intellectual movement uh, to try to redefine conservatism in the United States. Uh, and there's a long history of these think tanks, intellectual movements, usually very well financed, doing just that, right? Trying to nudge uh, conservative groups and the Republican Party in the direction that they want. But what made SnackCon interesting is they've been distinctively successful over the last couple of years, uh, to the point now where many people consider them to be kind of the, the ideological or intellectual vanguard uh, of conservatism in the United States. Uh, and What's interesting about them is the way they break from a lot of the orthodoxies that you'd expect about Republicans, uh, but not necessarily in a good way. Uh, the kind of countries that they now look to as models for emulation aren't places like, say, Singapore, for example, right? Okay, uh, so 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 I, I want to just cut you off there. So uh, before you say any other countries they could look to as examples, this is the this is quiz time. Uh, who is the most interesting person who's spoken in a NatCob conference we could watch? It's a hard question. It depends on whether or not you want to go into the dregs or you want to deal with like somebody more serious. Because, uh, I mean, J.D. Vance gives just a fucking incredible discussion there. Oh, yeah, there we go. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, let's roll with this. This will definitely be disturbing. Um but yeah, I mean, they have some serious intellectuals also, people like Patrick Deneen uh, or Yoram Hazzoni, uh, who you and I both know have spoken there. Yeah, the Yoram Hazzoni, I should say, is uh, is kind of one of the, the intellectual uh, guiding lights of, uh, of, of NATCOM, National Conservatives. Um, he's, uh, he's an Israeli writer. I, I did a written uh, exchange with him a little while back. Um, about um, you know about a lot of things, but mostly about uh, sort of um, why I think that um, you know to not be too uh, not be too specious about this um, you know. But I think this is a fair description. Uh, you know why uh, you know why I think sort of individual rights and self determination are good um, and. Um, 
you know, why I don't actually believe that, uh, that the, um, that the sort of, uh, you know, national bonds and traditions of whatever culture you happen to be born into, uh, should, uh, should, should trump, you know, the sort of things that we care about. I hope we care about, uh, democratic rights, human rights, uh, all of that stuff. Uh, and we were going to, at one point to do a, uh, an actual spoken debate about it that kind of fell through, but, uh, I am still hoping that it's someday in the future, uh, that, that might happen. Um, I think that the, you'd be hard pressed to find a person who I would disagree with more thoroughly than, uh, than, than Yoram Hazoni, but it's also not like, um, it's also not like trying to argue with Tim pool or something. I mean, the, the, you know, Yoram, um, you know, reads books and, uh, you know, to, to put it mildly, you know, he, he's a, uh, you know, he's a much more interesting person to talk to. Yeah. And that's, what's kind of weird about NatCon, I suppose, uh, as a kind of big tent reformist conservative, uh, movement. So you do have, you know, the wackos, uh, that'll go there or frankly, just the shysters, uh, you know, people mm -hmm. like JD Vance, right. Uh, somebody who will, see which way the winds are blowing ideologically and just decide, well, that's the way I too must blow uh, in the immortal words of Mayor Quimby. Uh, but you also get more like serious intellectuals again, people like Deneen, uh, people like Kozoni. Uh, and again, what's interesting and concerning about them uh, is they do have a pretty sustained argument for why they want to see the United States and indeed any number of other countries adopt a model that looks a lot more like what you see, for instance, in Hungary. Um, than even what you would see with Reaganism uh, in the 1980s. So a less liberal, uh, more statist, uh, more socially conservative kind of conservatism uh, that's probably going to have as its ideological center some conviction about the need to preserve national identity and its culture, albeit again understood in these very reactionary ways, uh, but also at the same time, of course, insulating capital from certain kinds of pressures by redirecting them against more appropriate kinds of enemies. Yeah. Um, so I should say, actually, we did find the original video that we we're going to start with. So we are going to start with that, which is, uh, is, is not, um, quite as bad, although the gist is the same. Um, this, uh, so this one is, uh, let's see in the range of people who might speak at a NatCon conference, you know, not uninteresting, uh, certainly, um, this is a person who, um, who uh, people might remember a uh, something he wrote that uh, that contains the immortal phrase that will be burned into my brain forever. Uh, primitive root wiener. Uh, he, um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just you know Google and enjoy. Although we uh, we did uh, we did cover that at the time on the uh, on the show. Uh, he's uh, he's also somebody who is on record as uh, literally believing in the existence of demonic possession. Um, you don't believe in that? <laughs> I mean, it's October, Ben. If there's ever a moment to be concerned about that kind of shit and actually impress upon people the need to protect themselves, then it's fucking October, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Rod Rare. This past spring and summer, I worked in Budapest on a fellowship at the Danube Institute. I was there for about 10 days before I realized that 90% of the Western media reports about Hungary are either lies or at least serious distortions of the truth. 
I already knew from my reading and reporting that Hungary was not a neo-fascist state as the smear doctors and the Western media insist. What I didn't know until I actually lived in Budapest for a time was how far the reality is from the dominant Western narrative about Hungary. I thought, good grief, how is it that we American conservatives don't know what's going on here? How is it that we're not standing with these people? We have so much to learn from them. Eventually, I texted my friend Tucker Carlson and encouraged him to come over and see for himself. Even many American conservative elites have bought the standard narrative about Hungary. Now, Hungary is a normal country, not a... Um, before we get the heartwarming story of how he, uh, how Rod Dreher convinced uh, his buddy Tucker Carlson to love Hungary, and, uh, and, and we hear how wonderful it is... Um, he, he's been a little vague here, but he's alluding to, um, you know, Western, no doubt, globalist media uh, being uh, being very down on Hungary. Uh, why, why would that be? Well, I mean, most people don't want to live uh, in a quasi-authoritarian regime uh, that constantly lies to its subjects uh, and where things have gotten so bad that they're pushing out major universities, which is an ironic thing uh, for the right to be applauding, considering how much they tend to bitch and moan about free speech being a major issue, right? Uh, and how the wokeists are the ones that are going to destroy that. I'd also like to just point out that in terms of standing up uh, for their principles, uh, we're talking about a regime that very recently was actually censored by the EU precisely because it's turning into uh, an illiberal autocracy. Uh, and very, very quickly, the administration decided that the immortal dollar is much more important uh, than the conservative immortal god in heaven. And they're now like, oh, yeah, we'll make any kind of reforms that you want. I mean, when we said that we'd go down fighting for, for our Judeo-Christian beliefs, uh, we didn't mean that we would go down fighting in poverty um, or see the regime crumble because of a lack of legitimacy, because we won't be able to fund basic social services anymore. I mean, Hungary is not a model anybody should be wanting to emulate. Yeah, so I, I think people might be familiar uh, with uh, some of the more batshit insane um, things that Hungarian President Viktor Orban uh, has uh, has said um which um have included um you know like literally i think there was something about we don't want to be race mixers uh yeah that was most recently yeah. uh with, yeah very recently um so uh so this is not a good guy but i mean just to uh just just to help people and you know also i will say I, I hear right-wing populists sort of upholding hungary as some sort of model but uh if you if you claim to care about um, poverty, raging economic inequality, or whatever. I mean, like uh, the idea that you know Hungary is not exactly Sweden. Let's put it that way. Uh, that you know, it's 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 not a you know it, it, it's not any great shake as far, as far as you know how extent you know like the extensiveness of the welfare state and all that is absolutely nothing compared to like the you know Nordic social democracies. But like on a policy level, like like what has this guy been doing? Yeah, I should also say it's a country where corruption has gotten so bad, uh, where the leader of Fidesz, um, Viktor Orban, has decided to build a gigantic stadium uh, in his hometown to seat tens of thousands of people. Uh, his hometown has about four to 7,000 people in it, right? Uh, just a titanic monument to ego uh, that kind of bears positive comparison uh, to, you know, the kind of things that you would see in you know, various banana republics, you know, half-baked despotisms, you name it, all around the globe. Uh, but what ended up happening is that Fidesz initially lost an election um, 
early on in his career uh, as a kind of centrist party. Uh, Viktor Orban didn't like that, committed himself to never losing an election again. Uh, and what ended up happening is once they gained power again, I think it was in 2010, uh, they quickly went about essentially reinventing uh, the country and its constitutional and electoral system uh, to do just that, to make sure that they would never lose power once more. Uh, and this involved multiple changes to the constitution, essentially turning the judicial branch uh, into an arm of the executive branch, uh, co-opting the media, particularly the state media, uh, getting rid of the Central European University uh, through a variety of steps. One of the first was essentially banning any program that had affiliations with things like feminism, gender studies, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, and eventually got so bad that the university just exiled itself. Uh, but probably things became really transparent around 2015, uh, the time of the migrant crisis, uh, because many people were fleeing from the Syrian civil war into Europe, uh, and Viktor Orban involved an extraordinary amount of Islamophobia uh, to essentially say, not in our country. Uh, and this included you know, doing truly horrific things to some of the migrants who wanted to come in. Uh, but one of the results of this is that more people had to flee to Germany uh, since there wasn't space for them in smaller Eastern European countries, or they weren't allowed in smaller Eastern European countries uh, like Poland or Hungary. And consequently, Germany had to take in uh, about a million, uh, which is the right thing to do, I should say. Uh, but accompanying all this Islamophobic rhetoric was some good old anti-Semitism uh, as well, which we, you know, always is creeping not very far below the surface uh, in the political right. But it became pretty galvanizing uh, where you started to see them talk about George Soros, right, as this shadowy figure who essentially owns the country, who's bankrolling all of Orban's enemies, who's got his fingers in every single pie. And one of the big ironies of this, I should point out, is Orban himself was a beneficiary of Soros money early in his career when he got a scholarship to go study in England from the Soros Foundation, right? Uh, not something that he publicizes too frequently, right? Uh, but it's not very hard to draw a connection between you know, George Soros, uh, this Holocaust survivor, is funding all of these Muslims uh, to try to get them to come in and destroy our Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, or Christian heritage, excuse me, and some of the uglier sides of uh, anti-Semitism that you've seen before. On the yeah, in Hungary, they probably leave out the uh, prefix. Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. All right, let's watch Drod. Perfect one. Still, I told Tucker, there are plenty of good things going on here and lessons that American conservatives can learn and should learn from the way Prime Minister Viktor Orban and the Fidesz party govern their country. Well, as you know, Tucker came in late August and did a week's worth of shows from Budapest. This caused the U.S. media's hair to catch on fire, naturally. But what I hope Tucker's broadcasts were able to do is uh, first to let the broader conservative movement know that Hungary is an important ally to us, one that needs and deserves our support. Second, to help establish Budapest as an intellectual capital for the anti-woke national conservative movement. And third, to draw the attention of Western conservative thinkers and politicians to what Viktor Orban and his government have been able to accomplish. As an American conservative whose writing focuses a lot on the totalitarian nature of wokeness, the biggest difference between our conservative politicians and Viktor Orban is this. Our team talks incessantly about how horrible wokeness is, but Prime Minister Orban actually does something about it. I want to say just the level of gall it requires uh, to talk about the so-called totalitarian danger of wokeness while supporting a country where the government has literally taken over the official press and is silencing its, like its, mess, or sorry, its opponents is just astounding. 
right? Uh, I mean, what does George Carlin say, right? Like the level of bullshit uh, that you have to be prepared to tolerate coming out of your own mouth is astonishing uh, to be able to say those words. Yeah, I mean, wokeness. Like, you might as well just sit there and be like, hey, listen, I'm completely full of shit. Just every word I say is just dripping diarrhea. My name is Rod Dreher. Hello. <laughs> I mean, yeah, wokeness is totalitarian, but an actual authoritarian uh, government that, um, you know, the European Parliament has said is no longer a democracy, uh, that, uh, that has... Um, you know, was involved in, uh, you know, a spyware scandal, uh, has, uh, you know, has had huge scandals about its treatment of asylum seekers that, um, you know, has, um, you know, that, that is not only, you know, not only like severely limited, you know, the, uh, the, the rights of, you know, sexual minorities, but, you know, bragged about, about doing so, uh, frequently. Right. I mean, it's like, I, I don't, you know, I don't actually love the term uh, totalitarianism, especially when it's applied to uh, mm-hmm. to to anything other than like the sort of original exemplars. Uh, but um, but you know, let's let's just say authoritarianism. I I think that uh, I think that you know I, I think that Viktor Orban's hungry is probably a little you know. I mean, look, I think a lot of what we're talking about when we talk about wokeness is both annoying and counterproductive. Oh, 100 percent, yeah. But um, you know. On the scale of authoritarianism, that's worse. No, exactly. I'd much rather be chastised uh, by certain people on Twitter for not saying the appropriate thing uh, than have the government literally tell me, oh, by the way, uh, your job is gone. Um, So either leave the country or you can stay here. And by the way, there's no more welfare state to support you. So good luck with that. Right. Uh, And I mean, you're absolutely right that this term totalitarianism is wildly overused. I think something closer to a softer liberal authoritarianism uh, is more appropriate when describing something like Hungary, uh, mm-hmm. where there are still the mechanisms in place uh, for democratic competitiveness, but the elections that are run are by no means fair, right? They're heavily mm-hmm. hedged in favor of the governing party. Uh, and that's been getting worse and worse uh, every year consecutively for more than a decade now. Uh, so you've had elections, for instance, where Fidesz has won yep, well, than, well below 50% of the vote, uh, and yet won well over uh, 50, 60, 70% of the seats uh, in parliament, right? Uh, and then it's used that to rewrite the constitution to make sure that it can even do, do that even more successfully and more aggressively next time, right? And you can't characterize that as a democracy in any way, shape, or form. Right. Yeah. Not if, you, not if words still have meaning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the, um, so this is the Amnesty International report about Hungary. Uh, about, um, you know, talks about, for example, um, the Hungary passed a law in June 2021 banning access uh, by teenagers to material that promotes or portrays divergence from self-identity corresponding to sex at birth or homosexuality. Um, The uh, European Commission uh, uh, launched an infringement procedure against this uh, because... um, this violates uh, EU uh, requirements about freedom of expression, non-discrimination, education, uh, government, uh, so reluctant to ratify the Council of Europe Convention, preventing and combating violence against women and domestic violence, Istanbul Convention, um, that signed 2014, alleging the convention promoted gender ideology and illegal migration. Women continue to experience widespread gender-based discrimination. Um, 
the uh, discrimination against Roma, children from Roma families living in poverty continue to be separated from their families and placed in long-term state care, even though this practice is forbidden by the Hungarian Child Protection Act. Uh, more than 300 Hungarian nationals were identified as possible targets for this uh, Pegasus spyware produced by the te surveillance technology firm NSO Group, uh, refugees and migrants' rights, uh, <laughs> you know, freedom of expression, association, uh, and assembly, right to a fair trial. You know, you can people can look up the the Amnesty International report, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that um, you know, like if if somebody uh, <laughs> You know, if if somebody uh, tries to uh, informally socially enforce um, annoying, uh, you know, norms about language police and hell, if somebody tries to disinvite a speaker from a college campus, you know, I am willing to hear a critique of the illiberalism of that from um, a lot of people, but oh. uh, maybe maybe not so much uh, people who point to. Uh, Victor Orban's hungry as a model to be emulated because damn it, they do something about wokeness. Oh, absolutely. They do a lot about it and plenty more beside. And I like to say beyond just the extraordinary hypocrisy uh, uh, talking about totalitarian wokeness while, author while endorsing authoritarian and liberalism, uh, you can also talk about whether or not the country actually lives up to its nominally Christian principles. Uh, I mean, Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ uh, was a refugee. He fled to Egypt. Uh, you know, and he consistently talked about the importance of Samaritanism, right? How regardless of what group you come from, you should be a good neighbor uh, to your fellow human beings. Uh, what did Victor Orban do in 2015 uh, when millions of people, uh, women, children, people who are suffering extraordinary hardship uh, came to his border? Uh, he built a giant fucking wall and told them, not here, not my end, right? Go somewhere else. Uh, and in one of the greatest historical ironies I can think of, it was fucking Germany, right, uh, that decided it was going to be more inclusive, open-minded, and liberal uh, than Hungary uh, and this little tin pot dictator, right? Uh, so even for Hashemite to call itself something like a Christian nation uh, is in mockery uh, of the kind of original like, – Yeah, I think, uh, I think Christian – you know – I think Christian means more not Muslim than uh, than it means uh, than it means like actually connected to uh, to, to Jesus Christ in some way. Uh, oh, exactly. I, I do just want to point out in the chat, JB says claiming hunger is in democracy puts one on a very slippery slope. We're pointing out what countries are functioning democracies. Are there any functioning democracies? What I'd say about that is there's a spectrum, right? That um, you know, the United States, for example, is much less democratic than many Western Northern European countries in a lot of ways. Um, that, you know, ranging from the electoral college to, you know, the, um, to, you know, limits on, you know, other political parties participating in the process to et cetera, et cetera, even if we're just doing the bare minimum procedural stuff and not asking any more substantive questions, but, um, it's, uh, you know, but, but there are plenty of countries that's more democratic than, and, you know, if you have the, the sort of spectrum of how democratic a country is, um, out of the places that still have actually contested elections, Hungary, you know, I think is pretty close to the bottom of uh, of the list of uh, of how uh, of how meaningfully democratic those are. You know, at least in Europe, um, you know, and I think you can, um, you know, I think you can make, I think you can and should make contrasts without without claiming, you know, that any other particular country is is a ten on that scale. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean. How you define democracy is in itself uh, extremely tricky uh, and invariably involves 
very loaded uh, and complicated kind of normative modes of reasoning, right? Uh, but there is a spectrum that exists, uh, and probably the Nordic states uh, would be very, very close uh, to the apex of the democratic spectrum, right? Uh, they're highly competitive, they're multi-party, uh, there's a chance for any number of different ideological coalitions to take power and to hold power for a long period of time. Not to, not to mention that they're you know moving to somewhat more substantive questions that there's mm -hmm. there's a uh, there's a powerful enough uh, labor movement that the uh, that you know for you know the majority of the population to you know to to exercise at least a little bit of actual influence on uh, on political outcomes you know in ways that you know ways that it really can't and for example the United States. Absolutely. And I mean, if we want to talk about economic democracy, I would say they rate very highly there, at least compared to the alternatives, right? Uh, interestingly enough, the, the United States is now considered to be a kind of backsliding uh, democracy, which nobody expected uh, to mm. see, uh, since it's one of the world's oldest republics. Uh, although I would say that the United States didn't actually become a full democracy until well after uh, many comparable states. Uh, right. I would actually say the United States really only became something close to a full democracy uh, in modest terms. Uh, in the 1960s with the passage of yeah. different civil rights bills. So that's an important kind of caveat to put there. Uh, Hungary was a pretty democratic state, uh, actually, in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, it had a robust multi-party uh, democracy. Uh, and again, you can see that by the fact that Fidesz lost a few times, uh, to, especially to uh, this, particularly to the Socialist Party that was its main rival at the time. Right? And nominally, at least, uh, Fidesz still could lose again. Uh, which is why people don't call it a full authoritarian state. Uh, it still holds elections. There's still the chance that the ruling party could be defeated, but it would take pretty much everything going well uh, for an opposing coalition uh, and everything going wrong for Fidesz. Uh, and that's not a kind of fair electoral system. Uh, and then the other kind of question you have to ask, in addition to how democratic, uh, sorry, Hungary is, is how liberal uh, Hungary is. Uh, and there I'd say it does even worse. Right. Um, precisely for the, all the reasons listed in the Amnesty Report. Right. Its respect for LGBTQ and trans rights is abysmal. Uh, its respect for religious minorities is atrocious. Its respect for refugees uh, and norms surrounding the treatment of asylum seekers is terrible. Uh, and these are not things you want to be doing bad at. Uh, and by liberal, I mean, again, liberal in the more positive philosophical mm -hmm. sense, as you sometimes put it, not uh, economically liberal. Although Hungary yeah. is not a particularly impressive state there either, given the high levels uh, of plutocratic corruption. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and again, I mean, if you, you know, if you say that you have all of these concerns about, uh, you know, global capitalism and, you know, that you are actually willing to endorse some kind of populist um you know, response to that uh, to uh, to to reduce the the degree of inequality and alienation, which some of these populist conservatives will like. Okay, um, but Hungary is clearly not your exemplar case uh, for uh, for for doing that, right? I mean, there's this again, like the the you know Hungarian welfare state. Um, you know, some of those people get excited about it because of child payments and things like that. But I mean, like it's it's not um, it's it's nothing like. You know, there's the sort of the sort of northern European, you know, high watermarks of, of social democracy, which, you know, is what you should really get excited about. But of course, they don't, because what they really care about is the cultural conservatism uh, that, you know, which which is the respect in which, you know, Hungary does much more closely, uh, much more closely mirror their preferences. But in any case, let's uh, let's get back to Rod. 
I will say he does look like a character in like a Harry Potter film or something. In Budapest, I learned that the Orban government had removed accreditation and funding for gender studies in Hungarian state universities. Yeah. Now, in the past, I would have opposed that kind of thing on the grounds that whatever harm gender studies did to society, it was not worth the state involving itself in the life of universities in that way. Well, those days are over. We are living right now through a societal cap. That's funny, that little admission, right? Like, once upon a time, I would have been concerned when a country's premier from There's no space for freedom of expression or academic truth-telling any longer, but eh, whatever. This past summer, I visited the government's family ministry and learned that in two days from the time of our meeting, the government was going to put forth a bill in parliament that would regulate LGBT material directed to minors and give parents a say over sexual education in schools. I sat with Catalin Novak, the family minister, and her team and asked if they had seen the Blues Clues Pride Parade clip. They had no idea what I was talking about, so I explained to them how the popular American program for children was deconstructing and queering the family through animation and songs targeting pre-kindergarten kids. All around the table, jaws dropped. I will I say that, that one of the things I do like about conservatives things. recently is just the sheer abundance of children's cartoons that they watch. Like, <laughs> it's a truly staggering amount of cartoons that they go through, have strong opinions about, uh, get outraged by. Like, I sincerely suspect that there's a room dedicated at every single one of these major think tanks where all they do is just go through children's programming 24 hours a day and try to piece together everything they think could be done better. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if, uh, yeah, I wonder how long that obsession has lasted, right? I mean, like, like, like if, if when, you know, I don't know, in, in my, uh, in my childhood, like was, uh, you know, like was the right quite this obsessed with like the, you know, the, the horrible left-wing messages on Captain Planet or, you know, like, is, is that's uh, is this a new, is this a new fixation? It's a good question. Yeah. I don't know if like, you know, Newt Gingrich in the 1990s was railing against X-Men being like all this language of inclusion and tolerance for people with claws coming out of their arms. That's a dangerous precedent because it allows children to think that it's okay for dangerous people to be in their midst. Are they probably, or- but, yeah, that's it's not okay to uh, to to have uh, you know anthropomorphic uh, turtles uh, raised by a cross species uh, single father uh, rat sensei. I mean, like like I, I, I you know I, I am uh, you know like there, there's material you can work with there. Absolutely, those decadent turtles are destroying our civilization. Exactly. Things that woke capitalism and the news and entertainment media use to advance the agenda. Well, the law passed, and it caused massive controversy in Europe. The Prime Minister of the Netherlands vowed to bring Hungary to its knees over the law. To be clear, the law does not ban LGBT material in the media itself. If it had, that would clearly have been going too far, and I would have opposed that. The law only regulates material aimed at children. When you look to the U.S. and the U.K. and the social contagion of transgenderism among teens and adolescents, this really becomes an urgent matter. The Hungarians now have a huge fight on their hands with the EU over this controversy, and it's a fight worth having because the future of the family is at stake. 
Ask yourself, though, is there a single major American conservative politician who would dare to put it all on the line like the Hungarians have to fight for the family in this? Yeah, and hasn't really aged well because they fought and then they very well quickly decided that if again you have a contest between family values and God and the almighty dollar, well, we know uh, that the almighty dollar is the real God around here. Yeah, please, the almighty euro. But yeah. <laughs> True, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's also like, to be clear, this law he's talking about, um, it doesn't just, um, I mean, it's not even, you know, not that this would be okay, but, you know, it's not even just uh, trans content, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it, that's, uh, that's also, uh, you know, also anything having to do with homosexuality, uh, that, you know, is, is, is barred from, you know, the, uh, people, you know, people who are under 18 are barred from, from access to that. Right. So the thing, the thing that Rod is describing as a, as an urgent crisis here would, I guess, include the fact that like some teenagers are gay and, uh, they, they might be able to access materials that, you know, that, uh, you know, like this is, this is the, this is the crisis, right. That the, uh, that like, if, if I have, um, you know, if, um, you know, that if like a, you know, if a gay teenager was, uh, was able to, uh, to, to access anything that alluded to the existence of homosexuality in a non-disapproving way, you know, that would be, you know, that would be a catastrophe. Oh, absolutely. I mean, let's talk about the kind of content that they're alluding to. Uh, Cause I don't think any sensible person has a problem with the idea that children should at least be disincentivized from watching everything, right? I don't need an eight-year-old going to Lars von Trier's Antichrist uh, and saying, well, that was interesting. Now I'm going to be scarred for the rest of my fucking life, right? Uh, but that's not what we're talking about, right? What we're talking about is forms of programming that imply the existence uh, of LGBTQ people and also imply that there's nothing wrong with that, that it's a normal part of our society, which it is, I should say, and has been from since the dawn of time, right? Uh, that's what they're trying to target. Yeah. And a a lot the of these people, by the way, like to talk about Western civilization and, you know, uh, and the, the values and ideals of Western civilization. Uh, some of them, uh, some of them, as you know, uh, really love the, uh, the phrase, um, that uh, you know, I guess they're getting from Tertullian, although they're they're with different uh, with different approval, disapproval. Athens and Jerusalem. Um, and, yeah, I always uh, say to these people, right? They should go back to hang out with Socrates uh, and Alcibiades late at night in the Symposium uh, to talk about Judeo-Christian battles, and we'll see how they they get along with all of them. Yeah, that's you know, I, I think if we're um, you know, I, I I don't always get the sense that these people uh, know a lot about. Uh, you know who, uh, who you know about the Athens half of uh, of Athens and Jerusalem. No, uh, I mean, this is, there's a reason why I think a lot of these people spend a lot of their time watching cartoons. It's because they have a cartoonish vision uh, of Western civilization, right? Uh, it's one that only includes a very select set of figures and ideas uh, that they identify with, uh, all of which ultimately lead up to the views that they already endorse. Uh, and anything that challenges or contravenes that in any way uh, has to be discarded uh, or characterized as other. Uh, and that's a deep disservice uh, to the kind of complexities of Western civilization. Like, I'd be the first to admit that a lot of people I don't like fall into that paradigm. Don't agree with Edmund Burke about a lot, but he's there. And he's an important figure. You have to deal with him. But so does Karl Marx and a lot of others. Right? Uh, and again, if you look at the uh, tradition uh, and what it has to say about homosexuality, you find a wide array uh, of competing views. Uh, and I think that the ones that we've adopted contemporaneously are far, far better than what we've seen in the past. Yeah. This way, 
I mean, not just rhetorically, but in terms of law and policy. We saw back in 2015 when Angela Merkel opened the floodgates of Europe to the Islamic refugee tide, Viktor Orban said no. He was despised by all the right-thinking political and media talking heads who accused him of being bigoted and heartless. But Viktor Orban loves his nation and his people and is willing to defend them and their interests without apology. This past summer, I went to Paris on business and the fear of civil war with the Islamic minority in the suburbs was on everybody's lips. I realized in a way that I never had before that Viktor Orban had been right, deeply right in 2015. Hungary will not face the terrible reckoning that France, Germany, and other European nations will because Viktor Orban was courageous enough to go against the crowd. And you know, this past summer... Yeah, there's nothing that says courage, like going in front of starving refugees and being like, no, I don't have any room at the end for you. Uh, we all know that that's the right thing to do. Yeah, no, exactly. I'd, I'd also suggest that uh, his idea of, um, you know, like like his picture of, of, uh, of Muslims in France uh, seems to be that like anybody... Um, Anytime there's like tensions or riots or whatever in um, in France intercommunally, that's because, like I don't know, all the all the Muslims in France are jihadis or something. I, I think is not uh, you know informed by reality. Uh, that um, you know that I mean I think that that's a that's an issue for for the same reason that um, <coughs> you know for the same reason that. You know, post George Floyd unrest was an issue in the uh, in in the United States, right? I mean, it has has a lot more to do with the internal dynamics of uh, of French society than you know than than it does with just like oh, anytime we, you know, we can't let in you know oh, it's good that Orban didn't let in people who are fleeing from ISIS because like they would have turned out to be you know they would have turned out to be fundamentalists who'd be trying to impose Sharia law in Hungary. Oh yeah, absolutely, uh, and. He very carefully circumnavigated uh, the more pressing question about France, for example, which is France's long history of Islamophobia, uh, the way that it's ghettoized many parts of its Muslim population, the way that they're over-policed, uh, much like people of color here on the United States, uh, and the way that they're economically uh, marginalized and have been probably since the 1950s uh, in the aftermath of the Algerian Civil War, which in of itself is another whole thing we should be talking about, especially if we're discussing, uh, you know, France's relationship with its former colonies, including Syria, uh, and the role that that played in catalyzing the Civil War. So there's this kind of ahistorical bigotry uh, that pervades this entire speech, uh, so that when he says things like, oh, Victor Orban was right, uh, the only thing you can say is, "How? what in the world are you talking about? Uh, anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah. Semitic attacks happened in European capitals and even in New York and Los Angeles. I expected to see police and military deployed in Budapest's Jewish quarter to protect synagogues and Jewish businesses. I walked through the Jewish quarter daily going to and from work at the Danube Institute. Well, it turned out there was no need to bring out the police. The Jews of Budapest were safe. This is no accident. One of the favorite lines the Western media trots out against Orban is that he's anti-Semitic because of his denunciation of George Soros. Prime Minister Orban has responded correctly that Soros's Jewishness has nothing to do with it. Soros is a progressive billionaire who puts his considerable fortune and influence to work trying to undermine Hungary's sovereignty and its traditions. 
Of course they're going to attack Soros as strongly as Soros is attacking them. Including, I should we point out, its long history of collaborating with... Including, I should say, Hungary's proud tradition uh, of being an Axis power and killing thousands, if not tens of thousands, of Jews. Yeah. Um, so reactive in trying to repudiate that tradition. Yeah. I, I mean, it's... Uh, it's like, okay, are you actually like, what's the objection? So, you know, says, oh, he's this progressive billionaire who, you know, spends all this money. You're like, okay, so like, do you generally object to billionaires spending money on politics or, or is it just this one? No, absolutely. Right. And I mean, this is a very good example of what Rawls talks about when he discusses the equal value uh, of political liberties. Right. Uh, my general outlook would be that we need a much more egalitarian kind of horizon for political discourse where money won't play the kind of role that it does in politics. Uh, and I apply that across the board. So I want a world where George Soros and people like him uh, would have far less of a say in our politics. But that would include also, you know, the remaining Koch brothers, Peter Thiel, especially. I mean, definitely enjoy that one. Jeff Bezos, yeah. you name it, right? Uh, what's particular about these kind of far-right rhetorics uh, is, of course, he never mentions the problem of money in politics generally. Uh, it's only a problem when this one particular individual is pulling the strings uh, to try to manipulate this country and its proud traditions into endorsing progressive kind of positions that they wouldn't otherwise, which, again, sounds an awful lot like a classical anti-Semitic conspiracy yeah, it's, theory, it's which is why people, people keep on pointing that out. It's not anti-Semitism. It's 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 just that uh, it's just that we think that a Jewish banker is the uh, international puppet master of everything that we oppose. Exactly. By the way, uh, if Soros is listening, send me a check, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I, I don't know when that's coming. I've filed numerous complaints about the delay. Uh, yeah, no, I, it's. I mean, the Peter Thiel is a particular example because because um, you know Thiel is the primary in fact in some cases almost the exclusive funder of some of the politicians who have in fact spoken at NACON conferences you know your uh, your JD Vance's um, mm -hmm. for uh, for example um, and there are there are several of these guys I mean like like if you know I don't think he's going to uh, but uh, but if the um, but if the uh, the teal slate won right they there would be um, in uh, this this November I mean there'd be like three senators who largely owe their careers to uh, to Peter Thiel. Yeah, that's a horrifying thought, right? Uh, anybody who sits there and says, whatever Curtis Yarvin wants to say, I'll bankroll <laughs> him, uh, should not have any kind of say in our politics, right? And again, yeah. I say that generally about billionaires. I think we could do with less Soros money being floated around the world as well. Uh, but I would not lie and say that I would enjoy Peter Thiel uh, being rebuffed that way. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's keep watching has done to policing in cities where Soros-backed district attorneys have won election. The Hungarians have known who Soros is for years. Now, you will have heard that the Orban government drove the Soros-founded Central European University out of Budapest. It's not strictly true. The CEU is still there in part, but it did have to be a partial retreat under government pressure. To be frank, I honestly don't know enough about that issue and its particulars to take sides. <laughs> but again, my normal That's stance would have, wanted, would have been to have wanted the state to be hands off in this matter. But having seen what elite universities have done and are doing in the United States to wreck our national culture, it has become very clear that the status quo, the liberal status quo is untenable. I mean, that's Orban, a, understand, again, a understand remarkable that elite, statement there. It's like, 
I heard something about a major university being driven out of the country by the government. I don't really know enough to comment about that. Maybe I should learn something about it. But having looked uh, at how awful woke universities and how totalitarian they are in my country, I'm just going to suspect that maybe it was the right thing to do. Who knows? <laughs> how can I say? Yeah, it, it is funny. Like all the rest of these examples, he seems to know you know a lot about or at least feel confident enough to pronounce on. But that one, it's like, eh, who knows? I mean, before I – as I was getting ready to deliver a uh, – talk at a conference called what conservatives must learn from Orban's hungry. You know, I suppose I could have looked into that in advance of giving this talk, but I prefer just to say, I don't really know and glide over that example. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, uh, this is a guy where if George Carlin met him, we'd probably just sit there and be like, Oh wow. The bullshit detector is going to a hundred. In fact, we've fucking broken the scale. Yeah, exactly. All right. Universities captured by ideology produce a ruling class that despises its nation and its traditions and want to dismantle it. What Viktor Orban is trying to do is protect his people and the, the nation from those who would condemn it to de the decadence overtaking elite culture in the U.S., Great Britain, and much of Western Europe. Once again, what are our American conservative politicians prepared to do besides simply lamenting the advance of wokeness. Prime Minister Orban is not an ideologue, but a pragmatist. He is a Christian leading a predominantly secular country, and he knows that that comes with limits. And he is a small D Democrat who knows that inevitably the opposition will win an election. This is why he's building a conservative deep state so that conservative ideals can withstand and survive the inevitable change of power. When I arrived in Hungary and saw what he was doing, I initially had reservations. But once again, after talking to Hungarians, I learned that if the prime minister did not do something like this, liberal and progressive Hungarian elites, which hold the institutional high ground and access to EU funding, would crush the right. In other words, Viktor Orban is doing everything he can to ensure the long-term viability of Hungarian conservatism. Now, let's be clear. The United States is not Hungary. We're far more pluralistic and diverse. We have a different history and so on. It would not be possible to lift Viktor Orban out of Budapest and reproduce his Fidesz party program here in America, nor would it be desirable. But that's totally beside the point. And that point is this. Unlike our American conservative politicians, Viktor Orban understands the civilizational stakes of this culture war. He understands that in the post-Christian era, classical liberalism has been hollowed out by the illiberal left, which has conquered the West institutions and which wears liberalism like a skin suit. He understands that while uh, the left and its the allies way, I should the just establishment right in Western countries denounce him for his illiberalism, these gaslighters oh, are at ah. the same... Oh, wait till he gets back. Oh, there you are. I should point out just another rich irony about this guy talking about how Victor Orban understands that really the danger is from the illiberal left, so-called. Uh, Victor Orban uh, like gave a speech in 2014 to the Nod, which is a collection of conservative groups uh, in Europe, uh, where he said, and I quote, uh, the kind of democracy that we are building in Hungarian is consciously an illiberal democracy, right? Uh, 
I don't know how you can get much more overt about your liberalism than saying we are building an illiberal state or non-liberal state. Uh, and for him to just turn that around and say, well, what he's really doing this for is to try to protect Hungarians uh, against an illiberal uh, woke left is just an astonishing way of looping around to the conclusion that you want. Yeah, um, that's, uh, I mean, it's like that, that's, yeah, we have an illegal, illiberal state. No, you don't. Right? Like, uh, yeah, you must, you know, you must not mean that part. Uh, all right, let's, uh, yeah, let's finish this up. Same time advancing left-wing illiberalism with no effective opposition. Now, whatever you think of him, Viktor Orban is not prepared to sit back and watch Hungary's sovereignty and its cultural particularities and traditions dissolved by the acid bath of liquid modernity and the toxicity of wokeness. So what more should we American conservatives learn from Viktor Orban's Hungary? First, we need to articulate a clear vision for our nation. Orban doesn't want his country to be a Magyar Sweden, nor, by the way, does he want Sweden to be a Scandinavian Hungary. He is fighting for national sovereignty, both political and cultural, and against all forces, internal and external, that threaten it. Should we all? Second, thank you. Second, we need to place more value on political and legislative skill. We on the right can be such suckers. We fall all the time for live-owning, even as the left consolidates power within institutions. If Glenn Youngkin wins the governor's race in Virginia today, it will be in vain if he doesn't use the power he will have been given by the people to dismantle wokeness in the state's educational system. Now, it's not going to be easy, but what is the alternative? We have to quit being satisfied with owning the libs and prefer instead to save our country. Third, we need to embrace unapologetically an aggressive use of state power. Now, this comes hard for conservatives of my generation and older who are still living off the fumes of Reaganite anti-statism. We had better put that aside for good. Two of the most important political developments in recent years is the emergence of woke capitalism and wokeness in the U.S. military. Big business and the armed forces used to be thought of as generally conservative institutions. Not anymore. I hear all the time, all the time, from active duty and recently retired military folks saying that the senior command is completely woke and, in their view, driving the armed forces into the ground. I spoke in California last weekend with an officer who said that the Pentagon is more interested in winning the culture war against the unwoke American people than in winning actual wars against foreign adversaries. Is this true? If I were a conservative U.S. Senator, I sure as hell would want to know. This habitual deference the GOP has had to big business and to the Pentagon has got to end. The only The only institution right now that we have a shot of controlling as conservatives are institutions of the state if we win elections. When the people give our side power, let us use it to protect them and to advance the common good from these corrupted institutional elites who are turning our country away from its founding ideals and making it the sick man of the world. 
As I said earlier, a lot of us American conservatives, we just love to get together and gripe and complain about how bad wokeness is and how the left is ruining everything. I'm one of those people who does this. But I got to say, a lot of this is grift. It just is. You have to wonder if there isn't something in us that secretly wants the left to win that we ramp our complaining, keep making more mine. Victor Orban, though, he doesn't just come. I mean, that was fun. I was, I was going to let this play out, but I gotta, I gotta stop there here to uh, to give Rod a little bit of credit for that insight. Yeah, I was going to say that really explains the Dave Rubens of the world, along with a whole whack lot of others, right? I mean, like, that is a hell of a thing to uh, to say. It's like, yeah, guys, are we are we grifted? Is is that it? Is it possible that we're just like eternally appealing to culture war grievances uh, in order to uh, in order to advance our agenda, and that uh, and that we're actually happier, like to uh, to be able to fight about that forever and ever. It, it, could that be what the what the right just is? You forgot about the implication that what they also want to do is make a lot of money off of it, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, that could very well fucking be the banner for like Turning Point in USA, right? We want the left to, the left to win, so we can continue complaining about it, and Charlie Kirk can buy his next hotel, uh, like his next cottage somewhere, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. So, I mean, on a on an individual level. Um, you know, having some culture wars go on forever and ever and ever, so you can just you know own the libs and cash the checks, is uh, is certainly uh, is certainly a good uh, a good deal if you can get it. And on a at a larger political level, uh, you know, it's he's talking about you know Republicans' traditional love of um, of free market economics and uh, the Pentagon, but you know if you actually paid attention to what Donald Trump did in office, for example, that hasn't gone anywhere, right? That's, that is exactly where it's always been. But gosh, if you could talk about pronouns and all that, instead of talking about that, then that makes the medicine go down a little bit more easily because like their actual substantive agenda is incredibly unpopular. Yeah, and that's actually a very important point. Uh, what I resent is this characterization uh, of American conservatism as ever being small state. Uh, I mean, I think the term he used was we're running off the fumes of Reaganism and this kind of small government uh, idea. Uh, Reagan threw more people into jail uh, than any American president ever, right? Uh, there were points during his administration where there were more people in jail in the United States than there were in the Soviet Union, uh, which is a baffling thing to think about. Uh, so American conservatism has never been afraid of the state. Uh, I would absolutely agree that the ambitions that the NatCons want to put the state to uh, are very different than what the Reaganites wanted to do, right? Uh, and those are important theoretical and practical differences that we would need to mince and we need to be attentive to on the left. Uh, but this idea that there's some kind of small state conservatism out there in U.S. history uh, and that that's something that they aspire to go back to uh, is a mirage. Uh, and it's quite telling that he knows so little or is willing to acknowledge so little about the history of his own movement uh, that he's still bewildered by this illusion. Yeah. Um I also think uh, I agree with Jeremy Salmon uh, in the uh, chat says, what wars is he referring to? I think that's actually telling in itself that because um, a lot of people who, who want to, uh, to see the good of these guys uh, will say things like, Oh, at least they're anti-war. And 
That's interesting because if so, that's an odd concern for him to have. That uh, what did he say? That the Pentagon's more concerned about wokeness than it is with winning wars. What are these wars that he wants to win? Oh, I'm sure he has a number of candidates in his mind. Fair enough. All right, let's watch the last part. Complain. He makes things happen. He might not win in the end, but this Magyar honey badger is damn sure going to go down fighting. Right now, the political leader of the conservative resistance in the West is the prime minister of a small Central European countries that most Americans never even think about. If you want to know, if you want to know how the Hungarians are accomplishing all these great things, I would encourage you to stop by the Danube Institute table and pick up a copy of The Hungarian Way of Strategy by my friend Balas Orban, not related, uh, a top political advisor to the prime minister. Balas is here at this conference. Find him, talk to him. He's got a lot to say. In California last weekend, I met a Romanian evangelical who had been a political prisoner under the communist who escaped to America and came out to hear me speak because he had read my book, Live Not By Lies, about people like him. When he found out that I had been in Hungary this summer, and he told me how much he loved Viktor Orban. That's really surprising, I said to him, because I know the Hungarians and the Romanians don't get along. Yeah, 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 he said, but Orban is a fighter, and he's fighting for the things I believe in. I know just how that Romanian man feels. Thank you very much. Had a fun little fanboy moment at the end with that, you know, giddy little girlish glee. Uh, I, I will say that I think one of the things that we need to take away from this, though, as leftist analysts of something like NatCon is Victor Orban genuinely is a very smart guy, uh, which is one of the things that I'm worried about, right? Like he successfully reformed the country uh, in the way that a lot of Trumpists wanted to. And the fact that they're looking to what happened in Hungary as a kind of template for what they want to do in the United States and elsewhere, let's be clear, is pretty frightening. Oh, I think you're muted, Ben. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, a while ago, somebody in the, uh, yeah, jumped in the chat says these guys seem okay with Jews as so long as they're uh, far right. And, you know, whether the point of the Soros thing, <laughs> you know, the reason they're talking about him in particular is, you know, is that or, or not, I mean, to my mind, is a little bit of a secondary issue. I don't think it would be, um, I don't think it would be shocking if a far-right nationalist movement in Eastern Europe had an element of anti-Semitism to its, re its rhetoric, that, that wouldn't like blow my, my mind. But, um, but you know, I think the larger point is like, do you actually care about billionaires exercising political influence or do you just care about this one? And if you just care about this one, is there maybe a reason that he's your, uh, he's your, your poster boy? And, you know, even aside from, from how to read the rhetoric there, I mean, forget that. Like, um, again, you know, they, they like Rod just now use this phrase, woke capital, woke capitalism. It's like, okay, what do you object to? Is it the wokeness or is it the oh. capitalism? And I think we know what the answer is. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I should point out that right-wing critiques of capitalism are kind of an anomaly uh, in this country, uh, but they have a deep, deep history uh, in the European right, uh, which was founded on a kind of defense of the aristocracy rather than sure. a defense of capital. Uh, and it's never really lost uh, some of the more chauvinistic uh, and ethno-nationalistic dimensions that can be hedged that way. Uh, and even the language uh, that it kind of used ate what you saw people in the European far right use uh, in the 1930s, right? 
this idea of capitalism is aligned with decadent materialist decline. Uh, and now what we need is a revitalization of nationalist values, which is including, uh, which is going to include excluding undesirable people from the country like Muslims uh, and having a straw man who's going to stick up for the people. Uh, now, I, I don't think that Orban is a fascist. I want to make that very clear. Uh, but he's definitely cut uh, from the kind of conservative authoritarian model that really got its kickstart during that epoch. And that was one that was exportable uh, and eminently reproducible in a number of different countries. Uh, and the fact that you see so many fanboys uh, like Tucker Carlson standing over uh, Orban should make us very concerned uh, with what they potentially want to do in this country. Yeah, I mean, look, there's anti-capitalism and there's anti-capitalism. Uh, I'm an anti-capitalist because I would prefer socialism, uh, not exactly. because not because I think that what existed before capitalism was better. No. Uh, all right, Matt. It is a uh, it is a pleasure as always. Uh, I should um, I should say uh, Matt's uh, Matt's book about uh, postmodernity, which we talked about in the show recently, uh, has uh, has just come out. Uh, it's um, you know because it's um, you know because it's published by one of those uh, those decadent uh, academic publishers that uh, that would not be uh, that would not be allowed to uh, to operate in uh, Victor Orban's Hungary. It's uh, it's not particularly cheap, but uh, but you can certainly order it from your library. You can also get all of Matt's other books everywhere that books are sold. Uh, he is extremely prolific. Uh, just go to you know wherever you get your books. Um, you know, Amazon or Barnes and Noble, or preferably uh, Red Emma's Worker Own Bookstore in Baltimore. Uh, I believe you can get all these books from there, redemmas.org. Just type in McManus and enjoy. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and uh, if you do happen to pick up a copy of my book, uh, and uh, it does cost you an arm and a leg, uh, just know that if we ever meet in a bar somewhere and you happen to tell me that, I will personally buy you a beer. So that's my little incentive that I'll roll out. All right. Fair enough. Talk soon, Matt. Peace, buddy. Bye. All right. Um, I am now joined by Abdullah Farouk, uh, who is uh, one of the organizers for the uh, National Student uh, Day of Action for Reproductive Rights, which is coming up, I believe, if my math is right, on Thursday. How are you doing? And you're muted, by the way. I'm great, Ben. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh, Appreciate that. Uh, so, uh, so tell me about what you've got planned. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, just to give a bit of background, my name is Abdullah. I'm a PhD student in biology at the California Institute of Technology, uh, and I'm also a member of the Graduate Student Action Network as well as YDSA, the Young Democratic Socialists of America. So, uh, actually, before we get started, I want to acknowledge that today's just a, been a really bad day for student protest movements, uh, as the students have. Sharif University in Iran have been attacked really violently for just protesting against their right. their oppressive regime. And so I just want to give out a statement of solidarity with them uh, and with student protest movements really around the world. Um, yeah, so to talk about what's going on with us on October 6th, there, there's a day of action that's going to be taking place in defense of reproductive rights across the country. Uh, and that's going to be taking place at 50 schools across 30 states in both red and blue states. Uh, so just to give a bit of background on who we are, we're a broad, uh, democratically organized coalition of different student organizations, and we're spearheaded by the Graduate Student Action Network in uh, coalition with the Young Democratic Socialists of America. 
So we actually formed this Graduate Student Action Network after Roe v. Wade was overturned because we realized that we just didn't have any other recourse other than to just take our demands to the streets. Because right now, uh, reproductive rights, women's rights, and LGBTQ plus rights are under attack in this country and around the world. So what are we fighting for? Our demands are for federally codified protections for abortion, mandatory sex education, free contraception, and freedom of gender expression. We're calling on Joe Biden to invoke a public health emergency under the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, which would ensure that the abortion pill could be distributed legally across any state, regardless of any kind of uh, state level restrictions. Also making demands of our universities, colleges, and high schools to protect students' access to reproductive health care. And we're gonna be walking out of our classrooms and workplaces on October 6th to demonstrate the power that we have in numbers. So who are we kind of up against? There's a golden far right, which you've been talking about in the show, and in this country, this emboldened far right leads the Republican Party. And that's attempting to systematically strip women and LGBTQ plus people of their basic rights. And the Republican Party is using the Supreme Court to defend minority rule at a time when support for abortion has really never been higher. We also then have a Democratic Party, right, that refuses to use its power to codify Roe v. Wade legislatively. And that refusal left the right to abortion vulnerable to attack in the court system in the first place, right? So in the absence of a party that's willing to use its strength to fight for us in the halls of power, we're building a mass movement that can fight from below to secure these human rights for everyone. So I also want to say that this day of action... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Go, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, this day of action is really just the beginning. Uh, we're organizing to try and build a solidarity across the country, whether you're in red or a blue state. Um, and we're not planning on stopping these actions until we've won all of our demands. Uh, and yeah, I was, I was just going to add that our goal is to build solidarity really around the world. Um, you know, as I said before, right now, women in Tehran are standing up to fight back against this oppressive right wing regime and assert their right to self-determination. And so our solidarity extends beyond just the United States. Right. Yeah, I would uh, I really recommend people want to check out. We have uh, we've not been able to do anything on this show yet, but uh, our uh, socialist uh, brother podcast left reckoning has uh, has done good, uh, good Iran coverage. And I would recommend that people people check out uh, what they've put out there. Abdullah, where can uh, where can people who might want to know if there's something organized at their university, or who who want to know how they can help organize one if there isn't, or otherwise want to get involved, where they where can they where can they find you and hook up with this effort? Yeah, for sure. So the best place to go to is our website www.gradaction.org, uh, and if you go on there, you can find an event that's happening near you on October sixth and attend it. Please, you know, bring your friends, bring your family, bring your coworkers. Um, and if there's, uh, if you're a student and you're watching the show and there isn't a walkout that's planned at your school, we have a contact form on our website. So please fill that out because we're going to be planning many more events in the future, even if you don't have enough time to plan an event for October 6th. Yeah. So this is the website, gradaction.org. Uh, this is the, uh, this is the contact form is talking about. So, uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, we will we'll definitely put this uh, link in uh, in the description. And uh, um, yeah, thank you so much. And you know, solidarity. All right.
Thank you. Thanks for that. All right, um, we are going to uh, do one last thing before we go to the uh, the post game uh, for uh, for patrons. We're going to bring uh, Jake and Andy back on, uh, and uh, we have uh, one more clip uh, that uh, that we're going to play for uh, for the main show here. Lula, I'm not saying to talk necessarily about President Lula to average swing voters. That guy, but that being said, uh, no. But honestly, you know what's funny is that. I know people through covering him, a former president of Brazil and political prisoner, guys come up to me at live shows who are like, you know, I mean, look, they're into my show, so they're into politics, but they're definitely not part of any type of college, academic, whatever. That guy's cool. I follow him on Instagram. The pictures of him playing soccer are awesome. You read his interview, you watch my interview with him, he's talking about how people buy beer. I had a program so people could get, you know, buy a cup of coffee. When they buy coffee, they, you know, I'm not doing it justice, but he's speaking, and I think that's another thing. You're talking about somebody who rose up from being impoverished, illiterate metal worker who lost a finger, never went to college, and then became the most popular and effective president in Brazil's history. An outpouring of support for Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva and his bid for a third presidential term. Yeah, and update, um, the first round of the Brazilian election uh, happened um, yesterday, and uh, they are going to do a second round, you know, because it's not, you know, there's several candidates that there isn't, uh, um, doesn't cross the 50% the threshold that, that I think you need to. But uh, Lula, who was, um, you know, when Michael first started talking about him, on uh, the show that, you know, this show grew out of a segment that I used to do on, the Michael Brooks show. Uh, Lula was in prison in, uh, in Brazil uh, and had no immediate prospect of being let out anytime soon uh, because of, um, you know, because of extremely dubious uh, charges that then later there were, there were leaks uh, that, you know, were published, you know, by The Intercept uh, Brazil, that, that showed that the whole process, the trial, uh, was uh, was wildly uh, politicized. There was all kinds of coordination between the prosecutor and the judge, and they were openly saying, like, we need to make sure that we nail this guy or else the Workers' Party is going to get back in power. And, uh, you know, and, and Bolsonaro, the very Orbanish, uh, you know, uh, president of, uh, of Brazil, um, you know, is, isn't going to get in. And then the, the judge in the case was rewarded with the plum position and the Bolsonaro government, it was a huge scandal when all this came out. Um, and uh, and then Lula eventually got out of prison. And in the in the vote yesterday, he beat Bolsonaro by several million votes. Uh, it was like you know forty eight percent to forty four percent or something. So uh, obviously the work is not done yet. Got to uh, you know got to go to that second round, you know, and uh, and keep pushing. But it's a huge initial victory. Absolutely. It's, it's been exciting to kind of watch because uh, Michael kind of brought this to us in a way. Like, like uh, I wasn't aware of the whole situation. I, I mean, I knew a little bit about it, but I wasn't really following the uh, it closely. And then Michael really kind of like not only put a spotlight on it, but but uh, really like punctuated the important parts of it. So so it's it's uh, kind of nice to see this kind of re uh, resolution to the story. Uh, uh, and and I, I'd like to think that he had something to do with it. 
yeah, I mean, he certainly, you know, he certainly played a part in, in, uh, in raising awareness of it in the, uh, in the United States and, um, and in getting, um, which actually did have a real, you know, um, a real outcome in terms of like, uh, you know, politicians talking about it and, you know, and all that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, this is, um, you know, I mean, again, this, you know, man was in, uh, in prison when Michael started talking about it, just, just, just won the first round with several million votes. Um, you know, that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's massive. That's, that's really exciting. Um, and it's, um, yeah, I mean, I will say actually, you know, while, while we're going down this particular, you know, path of memory lane, uh, that, you know, I was a, uh, I was, you know, I started to listen to, to MBS a few months before I, I, I had my own segment on it. And, um, you know, I was like going back through and listening to what were already old episodes at that point. And it was a while in the beginning. It was like, oh, my God, we're, we're going to do another Brazil. I, I mean, we, we've done this like 20 times. Come on, man. You know, like uh, and um but then, you know, since it's Mike would be very charismatic about this stuff, I mean, like, eventually he, he got me to be kind of obsessed with it, too. And, like, the first thing that I, I wrote for Jacobin in 2019 um, was actually about Brazil. Um, and uh, and then Michael and I co-wrote an article for Jacobin about, you know, Bernie calling to Freer Lula and why none of the other Democrats were doing the same thing. And, you know, and, and it, it, definitely, it definitely wormed its way into my head. Uh, so... Um, so in any case, I don't know. I don't know how much else there is to say about that, except um, yeah. Lula, Libre. Lula Libre. All right, we are going to the post game for patrons. If you're not a patron, uh, Patreon.com/slash Ben Burgess. Five bucks a month, you get the post games after every regular episode. Uh, you. Uh, pay everybody here's salary uh and uh you get access to the uh, to the discord sometimes they're bonus episodes most importantly you get our gratitude for the act of solidarity so um we are about to go to the post game uh for uh, for patrons if you are a patron uh, you should have already gotten that email or you can go to the patreon and see it we're going to be joined by our friend uh c derek varn who i actually met um Physically, I'd, I'd known him online before, but I met physically the same time I met Michael Brooks uh, back at the at the beginning of this little saga. So uh, he has um, Varn has uh, has been on the channel before, but he's never been on the Monday Night Show before. So uh, looking forward to hanging out and talking to him in the post. We're going to do that now. Left is best. <laughs> 